Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Aidan McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Jonathan Lemire, White House reporter for the Associated Press and political analyst for MSNBC and NBC News. Jonathan was a local reporter covering New York City politics when he was sent to cover the launch of Donald Trump's presidential campaign in 2015. That wild ride eventually landed Jonathan at the White House, where he covered four years of Trump and now reports on the Biden administration. He's one of the most prominent members of the White House press corps and makes daily appearances on Morning Joe as a political analyst. I called up Jonathan on Thursday to discuss his time covering the Trump and Biden presidencies, as well as the indictment of the Trump Organization and CFO Alan Weisselberg. I also made Jonathan, who worked at the Daily News for more than a decade, explain the mess that is the New York City mayoral race. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing? My pleasure. Great to be here. I'm well. How about you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. It's been a it's been a pretty crazy week in news, though. I will say it feels like it's the first week since the end of the Trump presidency that is like reminiscent of those four years where breaking news was just constant. Um, is this giving you some flashbacks to the Trump era? Yeah, some PTSD maybe. You're <laughs> right, though, that this is uh, you know it's sort of the relentless cycle of news um, that we never I wouldn't say grew accustomed to, but became the norm. Uh, during the Trump administration that has not been the, quite the case since President Biden took over. And that's been deliberate on their part, right? That they they want to lower the temperature. They flat out said, we want you to think about the president less. Just know he's doing his best for the American people. Hmm. But this week, we, you know, some of the news still generated by Donald Trump, we should, uh, we should add. But of course, we have this disaster in Florida. We have the back and forth on the infrastructure deal. We have Trump uh, in, at the border and now charges, criminal charges to be uh, unveiled about the uh, his business uh, in New York. And, and I'm knocking on wood as I say this, it's already a busy week. This is the end of the Supreme Court session. And if there's oh, ever good justice for justice to retirement, they're usually pegged to this. So that's something else we have to keep an eye on. Very interesting. Now, just on the Trump news, um, and that is that his his trusted CFO, Alan Weisselberg, just surrendered to police as he and the Trump organization are set to face, char face charges related to a tax investigation. Do you know if there's any concern in Trump world about this indictment? There's there is, of course, some. I mean, this yeah. in, in a couple of different levels. I mean, Weisselberg has has not cooperated. He's been a trusted uh, you know, employee of the Trump organization. He is not uh, someone who has who has flipped, unlike so many who have worked for 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 Trump. Um, and we though the specifics of the charges won't be known for a few hours yet. Uh, it can't inherently not great uh, for the for a business for a Trump organization that is still trying to do business, get loans from banks, you know, that is trying to uphold at least whatever its reputation is at this very moment. Uh, so that's not ideal. And of course, while at the moment we don't anticipate that Donald Trump himself or members of his family, particularly his two adult sons who ran the business while he was in office, we, at the moment, we don't believe that they're personally liable, but this also is being viewed as like, this is just the first salvo of what could be uh, ongoing legal challenges faced by the business and the president, the former president and his family. Uh, and, you know, and that's going to shadow this next period of Donald Trump's life as he is trying to sort of resurface and re-engage on the political world too. I gotta say, it's a fairly, fairly impressive loyalty from Alan Weisselberg to, to not sort of turn and cooperate. I mean, I can't imagine doing that on behalf of someone that I worked for. Um, but maybe, maybe that's just me. Um, now, you, you're one of the oh, reporters. I'd flip, on, I'd flip on my employee, my employers oh, immediately if I had I, to. Yeah, no doubt. Every well, you're on I've, notice, everybody. On every notice. editor I've ever had would get thrown under the bus so quickly. 
Um, <laughs> you're one of the reporters who really covered Trump from the beginning of his ascent to the presidency, which you know started with his descent down the escalator at Trump Tower in 2015, which I believe you were you were at that event, um, if I'm not mistaken. I um, was. Uh, I was um, the very quick tangent on that is simply I was uh, at the time covering national politics, New York based. Uh-huh. And at the time in June 2015, you know, Trump, of course, had rumored uh, to had run before, never did. And there was still anticipation that day, that the expectation that he, that he wouldn't. This is another false alarm. And our campaign editor based out of Washington was like, well, it's not really worth sending someone up for it. Can you just you're the local guy. Can you check it out? Yeah. Uh, so I went and I was there as he came down the escalator and uh, changed the course of history in many different ways. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I covered the campaign uh, every step of the way and then his uh, entire time in office. It's fascinating how so many local New York reporters, because like newsrooms were obviously yeah not sending the, the sort of the White House, the Washington, D.C. correspondents, were the reporters that then became White House reporters um, for the Trump administration, which was obviously, you know, a, a historic one. Um, it, it must have been odd to have the Trump presidency be the first one that you covered at the White House. Um, what was that experience like? Sure. I didn't obviously have I in some ways, I will say, actually, it was somewhat to an advantage because I had, and to, to your point, not only were a lot of New York-based uh, reporters who covered the campaign then came in and covered the administration, but so many of us had even dealt with Trump in his mm. previous life as a celebrity developer and sort of gossip trader and so on. So, you know, I covered him in, in other contexts too, just when he would do things for The Apprentice or just announcing his latest deal uh, in Manhattan real estate. Um, but I think that in, in, in so, and so many of us then went on to cover sort of the New York City mayoral race, uh, City Hall. Uh, you know, for years. And that's that's the only other, frankly, uh, you know, sort of media environment that gave me comparable to covering the White House is sort of New York City, New York City politics. So that was good training ground for a lot of us. Uh, but I think coming in cold, coming in with Trump as my first president in some ways may have been an advantage because I had covered him for a year and a half on the campaign. So I was used to his speed, the sort of mm-hmm. frenetic energy and how things were being tossed off left and right. You sort of got to know him and how his news cycles worked. Well, I do think there are some, and this is certainly no, no disrespect whatsoever, but some of the reporters who had covered several administrations, it took them, there was an adjustment period to get <laughs> used to how Trump worked. Like, and I think there, we heard a lot of veteran correspondents, tremendous reporters, all of whom, of course, more than adjusted and did great work. But initially in those first few weeks and months were sort of like, wait a minute, this is, this is not how it used to work. And I was like, yeah, yeah and it's never going to work like that again. <laughs> not while this guy's in office. They're, they weren't used to the sort of 3am 3, 3 tweets about annexing Greenland, I imagine. Yes. <laughs> no, not not initially. We eventually that became old hat. But uh. you you also uh, I imagine got fairly used to uh, pretty sort of tense exchanges with Trump. Uh, I was reading a piece that you wrote for uh, for Columbia about your time covering the Trump White House, and in it you wrote that the president call you said that he called me a sleaze bag in public mm. and worse in private. Um, what did he call you in private? <laughs> well, he um, yes, the sleaze bag moment was during the late stages of the campaign. It was soon after, in October of 2016, soon after the Access Hollywood tape had dropped and he had oh, interesting. shifted to doing, uh, He at that point he was just doing big events and not having any sort of smaller things where reporters could shout questions at him. He certainly had long stopped doing news conferences um, in any formal way. Uh, but that there was a small event, I believe in West Palm Beach, Florida, uh, where he had done like a business roundtable, and it was our first shot. It was our first chance in more than a week to be within like 15 feet of him. So I did indeed ask him about uh, the tape, and he uh, he called me a sleazebag and had me pushed out of the room. Um, and I certainly know, without getting into 
too many specifics, know that speaking to people uh, who work administration and people who talk to the president regularly, uh, that I was someone who, you know, and he has had a contentious relationship with a number of reporters, uh, but he in particular was upset at me, uh, well, a number of times, sometimes for things I would say on Morning Joe in the morning, a show that despite his protests, he would watch nearly every day. Uh, and also after the news conference in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin, when I asked him, uh, you know, who he believed, uh, U.S. intelligence or Putin uh, over Russia's election interference in 2016, uh, and it was reliably reported, uh, in, including in the Washington Post, uh, that he was very angry uh, at press, then Press Secretary Sarah Sanders for allowing me to ask that question because he knew that I, she should have known that I was going to ask him a ton more. It, now, did that stretch back to when you were covering him in New York, or was that sort of animosity really after he made it to the White House or, or started it, the campaign? It, yeah, more the campaign. I mean, we, we I covered him some in New York. I wouldn't say that we had like, you know, I did not go back as long with him as say Maggie Haberman, who's of course done wonderful work covering him for the New York Times. Um, but we had our exchanges. But for 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 he and I, it was more from uh, the campaign. And of course, this is where I will say, like, whether it's my work at AP or MSNBC, always covered him fairly. And there were other times where, look, you know, he was, he treated me like any other reporter and like there were moments, you know, whether it was news conferences or, you know, smaller events, like he would talk to me, uh, you know, but, but I think we know from that he is someone who in particular folks he knew from the campaign or knew from New York or reporters he would see on TV, you know, certainly fixated, he, you know, he drew his eye, shall we say. Mm. Uh, so there were moments where I felt like I did get some outsized attention. And, and also it's my job as, you know, as a reporter for the Associated Press, and we're always in, you know, that traveling POTUS press pool. So we're in those small rooms with him. And that's moments where you have a, a quick chance where you need to ask a tough question. Um, and, you know, and he didn't often like the ones I, I held him. Now, are you, because uh, you're obviously uh, the White House reporter, um, do you spend uh, any time sort of down in Florida covering Trump still? Or are you mostly focused on the Biden administration now? I'm mostly focused on the Biden administration. I have um, not been to Florida or now Bedminster where, uh, where Trump is since leaving office. But I, I do help out from time to time. Uh, but we have other reporters who do that. I mean, look, he's the sort, you know, I have my relationship with him and his people. Like, I'm certainly, you know, on the periphery of it. But my, and I am in the early stages of writing a book uh, that will be out sometime next year, in which he's a, certainly a big piece of it. Uh, yeah. So he, I will sort of step into that world again. But for now, my focus is is predominantly on uh, on the Biden administration. But of course, part of what they're doing is dealing with what they were left by him. So it still all plays a role. I'm grateful to have covered the two administrations. Uh, and I think it's, 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 it's advantageous. I feel like there's some tension in the Biden administration about how much to pay attention to, to Donald Trump now, because, you know, they're trying to figure out whether or not he is the, still the leader of the Republican Party. Um, one thing you, you wrote about in that piece I mentioned earlier is how dangerous Trump rallies could be for reporters. And I'm curious if he still, if you still think he commands that sort of mob-like power over a crowd or has his, has, have his events cooled off a little bit since the end of the administration? That's a good question. I, I, I you know, I think I, I wrote about some of the stuff in 2016, but in 2020, some of them were heated as well. I mean, those mm -hmm. events took on a different air of, at times, danger because of the pandemic. Uh, you know, certainly at this point, look, it's a shtick at this point where, you know, Trump would would turn to the back of the room and, and call us all fake news and the crowd yeah. would, who and chant and things about CNN or whatever it might be. But there were certainly moments where you felt like actual 
a menace from some of the participants, people who were there. I mean, not all, to be clear. A lot of them yeah. even kind of like, it was a show. Like they'd go boo at us and then they'd ask us questions later and they couldn't have been nicer. Uh, other, well, it's other, like Jim, other, Jim Acosta taking like selfies with people in MAGA hats, you know, and, pre- and precisely. They, they'd scream at him like five minutes before. <laughs> yeah, there, we certainly saw plenty of uh, plenty of that. And then, and then, yeah, but yeah, occasionally there would be someone out there who felt like, okay, this person actually might be, uh, might be a problem. Um, and then, uh, you know, the issue in, those big rallies at the end of 2020 was simply that, you know, these were not socially distanced. They were not, people were not wearing masks. This was obviously prior to the vaccines. Uh, so that was, that was a concern for all of us trying to remain, uh, trying to remain safe. Now that he's out of office, I mean, obviously he drew a big crowd the other night in Ohio. Um, my colleague who was there suggested that the energy level perhaps was not quite what we've seen at other rallies, but I don't think we should draw too much uh, of a conclusion after one rally, particularly one that I guess had some technical issues where some of the video screens in the back weren't working so people couldn't see. Uh, I mean, look, the fact that he drew a crowd that size at all is still impressive. He's out of office. Um, there aren't too many politicians uh, who could do that. And he still remains, obviously, an extremely potent political force. Whether or not he runs in 2024, he's still shaping a lot of the discourse. And the Biden administration, to your point, as much as they would like to ignore him, uh, you know, they can't, not all the time. Yeah. Now, he was asked on Hannity last night, did an interview on Fox, uh, whether he had made up his mind about running in 2024. And he said, yes, he didn't say anything more. He just said he had made up his mind. I don't know how much of a tease that was, but do you have any idea or prediction about whether or not he's going to run? Um, I, I'm i surprised to hear him say that, but I guess yeah. I suspect, as you say, that's a bit of a tease. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the reporting that we have that he hasn't made up his mind, or at the very least, he's not going to publicly, publicly going to commit one way or the other for a long time. There's no reason why he should, right? It's in his interest to keep, yeah, keep this it, going. Keep yeah, us talking keep, about it. Precisely. So yeah. I don't think we'll hear from him definitively one way or the other, uh, you know, for quite some time. And I will just simply say, you know, based on my reporting, the people that I've talked to around him, you were earlier this year, pretty skeptical that he would run again. Um, and now I think that's changed a little bit. I don't think anyone's saying, oh yeah, he definitely will, but I think they're saying it's possible. I think it's possible. I mean, my sense of it is, is that it truly is unknown and we're not going to know for a while, which complicates things, of course, for the other members of the Republican party who might want to jump in and some of them are going to be reluctant to do so, uh, unless they find out one way or the other what he's doing. Yeah, I think he's going to, I think the leader, a lot of the leadership in the Republican party would love nothing more than for him to bow out and let like Ron DeSantis run. But I, I have a sneaking suspicion he's not going to make it that easy. Um, you're, you're covering the Biden White House now, and that I can imagine has been a completely different experience covering an administration that follows a conventional process and doesn't issue policy via tweet. As we said, are like, are you sleeping better? Is that a, <laughs> is that an easier administration to cover? What's it What's it like? It's still it's still busy, and I we were actually just uh-huh. talking to some of my colleagues this week, but it's busy in a more predictable way, I guess. Mm. And it's maybe in a more nine to five-ish way. That's though for me, I'm up so I'm up so early morning Joe, most 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 mornings that doesn't quite apply. Uh but but yeah, I mean look, we don't it, it is different. We don't have the 6 a.m. uh tweet that that rattles uh you know global capitals. Uh we you know it, it is it's far, you know, we remember all remember that in certainly in 2017 and, and early in 2018 during the Mueller investigation, where it seemed like nightly whether it was the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street mm. Journal, or, or my colleagues at the Associated Press, like nearly every night there was some screaming headline uh, that everyone else would have to race and match. And so one blockbuster and after another uh, yep. revelations about the investigation. That is that that has has changed some. Um, and, you know, certainly this is a much more disciplined White House. There are far fewer leaks uh, from staffers. There's far less infighting, at least so far, uh, among administration officials who, you know, during the Trump administration, 
you know, well, it would, didn't take much for one official to completely knife another one in the back uh, on the yeah. phone to you at any time because they were just trying to like, boost their own standing uh, with the president. Uh, but that's different now. I mean, a lot of these folks who work for Biden are Obama veterans. Uh, they pride themselves on being pretty, pretty tight lipped, uh, you know, but that, that, that changes over time. Certainly uh, as you know, it's easy to kind of keep all the oars rowing in one direction uh, for Democrats here when you're focused on one thing like COVID relief, you know, we're already seeing now a little bit of difference of opinions about how to pursue the infrastructure bill. And it's only going to grow more so when even more contentious issues like immigration or voting rights move to center stage. So, I mean, it will be, it is a certainly a more conventional White House that does briefings and background calls and like officials will talk to you like to inform you on a certain topic whatever it might be um but but you know we still cover it as rigorously as we did the last administration uh and you know there will be when when biden this administration does something well we'll say it when they do something poorly we'll say that too you know, I, on that note, I've heard reporters complain about sort of the difficulty in developing sources at the Biden White House and how there's this tight lid on leaks and, you know, there's not all this infighting. I mean, I, the, the first year of the Trump uh, presidency was wild for that. Um, it was just like a constant stream of leaks of people stabbing each other in the back. Uh, what has your experience been with the Biden White House and sort of building up sourcing? Are, are you able to work around the fact that it's a little bit uh, of a harder White House maybe to penetrate? It's different. Uh, I mean, I, I will say, I think, you know, obviously my colleagues and I are, do the best we can and I think have had success, but you, you know, you deal with administration officials, you deal with people outside the building too, right? You mm -hmm. talk to people who have talked to people, uh, you know, whether it's, it's, you know, because there's such more, more of a process-based um, administration, they do things like brief stakeholders. They do things like consult outside groups. They do things like talk to experts and, you know, before announcing things publicly. And you could, there's sort of, so there's sort of that network of people you can talk to. Obviously there's more of a coordination with the folks on Capitol Hill uh, than the Trump administration did. So there's, there's always a, a network of people to talk to, no doubt. Uh, you know, this is a more disciplined White House, whether that changes over time will remain to be seen. Uh, but, you know, what, what just, some of that outward, it's a very different set of sources than the Trump people who not only had an administration that was more internally likely to leak, but more than that, all that, that, that process I just described, Trump people didn't really do any of that. And no. far more important was just whoever Donald Trump was calling late at night from the White House residence. Like that's who actually mattered. Those were his sounding boards. And in some ways, those people like shaped Chris policy. Ruddy. Chris Ruddy or, or a Fox News anchor or whatever yeah. it might be. Those are the folks that he talked to and had far more of influence uh, than some, like, say, interest group. I can imagine it's it's also a little bit more satisfying to cover the news because I feel like a lot of times in the Trump era, you'd have, you know, Trump tweet out something on Monday, you know, about, uh, I don't know, whatever, like South African farmers. And then the entire White House press corps would have to run and figure out what he was talking about. And then by Wednesday, he will have moved on and wouldn't and will not have pursued whatever he had tweeted about. And now it's like everything's a little bit more deliberate, as you said. So it's like the news is actually more consequential. Um, you know, yeah, it involves less re reconstructing which Fox News segment he was watching at the time <laughs> to, to that prompted the tweet. Um, yeah. for sure. And I also think that, like, this is administration and Biden is President Biden has been very explicit about this, you know, from his inauguration speech that came in the door facing an extraordinary amount of challenges. So, yeah, I, you know, 
I'm sure I'm not alone in this. You people that I talk to who are sort of like, oh, you must be bored. It's less interesting. It's like, well, no, it, it's it, the level of drama is different perhaps, but like mm. this administration is facing extraordinarily weighty consequential things like a global yeah. pandemic and pandemic and vaccine distribution and a, a reckoning on racial justice and, and equality, all these things that are, that are still really important. They just may not light up the cable Chiron like his predecessor did. And, you know, the administration has been fairly fairly drama-free, aside from, I will say, the uh, a, a certain incident between a, a, a White House communications staffer and uh, mm. Politico. Um, but uh, Politico actually had a, a fairly brutal piece about the vice president's office that came out this morning. I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but it said that Harris's team is experiencing low morale, porous lines of communication, and diminished trust among aides and senior officials. Do, do you and your reporting get the sense that Harris's office is in disarray? Uh, I mean, I feel it, it seems like an outlier story of dysfunction in an otherwise pretty smooth running administration. Yeah, I did see uh, the piece, uh, and it's certainly pretty buzzy uh, today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, according to our, you know, our reporting, some of that overlaps with what we've heard. Um, yeah, I do think it's fair to say that the vice president is still trying to figure out a foothold uh, and trying to figure out exactly, you know, she's been given a pretty significant portfolio, uh, whether it's voting rights and, and immigration, and I think her trip. You know, to the border was not a necessarily a home run. Um, you were the officials I've talked to who had some misgivings. Also, her interview with um, I believe it was Lester Holt a few weeks ago, in which when she was asked about whether she was going to go to the border or not, and she said, "Well," and she responded with a variation of, "Well, I haven't been to Europe either." Uh, and I can certainly know that you know, as we reported, and some people in the West Wing rolled their eyes at that. Um, you know, and I think that it, it inherently, it, you know, the, the vice president can often be a pretty thankless job, mm. and I think that they have tried to. Uh, elevate her in some ways, but this particular vice president shadowing over the whole, her time in office is the idea of like, well, what happens in 2024? You know, is Joe Biden at age of 82 at that point running, going to run again? Yeah. Uh, you know, he has certainly said now that he plan he plans to, um, but I think it's, it, it's not a, I'm not breaking news here that say there's certainly plenty of speculation within the beltway and within Harris's inner circle as to whether or not that happens. And, and you know, if, if he, if he doesn't, you know, you know, she obviously would, she would think to be the favorite in 2024. So again, that's, that's yeah. sort of a tricky, tricky balancing act there too, where she's trying to serve the president, but also is aware that, Hey, my job could change very dramatically uh, in a year or two. Yeah. Now, one quality that made you well-suited for covering Trump is your experience in the New York tabloids. You worked at the New York daily news for more than 10 years. Um, I also got my, my start at the, the daily news, um, though I wasn't there for, for that long. Uh, what was that experience like? And do you, do you miss covering New York City? Oh, uh, it, I do. Um, I think that, I mean, New York City is, you know, the most vibrant, interesting place, uh, perhaps on the planet. Mm-hmm. And um, I did cover the Daily News for a long time. I, I actually started as uh, just out of college as an intern in the summer of 2001 mm-hmm. uh, and was still in an intern uh, role when the September 11th attacks happened. And I wow. covered, uh, I covered that. I was working that day and uh, was down, you know, was at the hospitals in the morgue that day, got down to ground zero on the 12th and basically worked around the clock for months, yeah. just like, just like all my colleagues. Um, so obviously that was a very defining, well, understand were you, were you a, moment. Uh, were you a runner as a, as an intern? You were sort of out, uh, not in the bureau. Yeah, sort of out. M- mostly. Yeah. Mostly yeah. a street, a street reporter. I write, I was able to write some, more than mm-hmm. perhaps some other interns, but yeah, of course, you know, I'm 21. Like that's, that's what they did back then. So you're just yeah. out and about, you fly dashing from borough to borough on whether it was a 
you know, some sort of whatever the tragedy of the day was, sadly, yeah. <laughs> uh, you more times than not. Um, and, and then that, so, you know, and I was soon after 9-11 was indeed hired uh, and, and stayed there for a long time and then wore a bunch of different hats covering police and fire, uh, you know, covered the, worked out of the Queens Bureau for a while. So it's community reporting, you know, covered city hall, did, um, you know, the 2012 presidential race from the Daily News and then came over to the AP in 2013 when they hired me actually to cover that year's New York City mayoral race. Um, but it was a great training ground. Uh, you know, I, it, I was able to do a lot of different things, uh, you know, and, and I do think that the, the, the fast pace of it was a good training for a job where, you know, the incoming is, is just kind of nonstop. Uh, what was your first job after, uh, after you were hired as, uh, from an intern? Uh, I first went to, actually, it was uh, the Queensboro. Um, so okay. I was, which no longer exists. Um, yeah. And, you know, was there, sadly. The Daily News, unfortunately, has fallen on through tough times. Um, and you covered everything from community boards to local politics. You know, I, phew, there was a time where I knew a lot of people in the Queensboro president's office, uh, <laughs> but you know, but it was invaluable training ground. Like that's how yeah. you learn. You learn to be a reporter. You learn how to source, you learn how to network, you learn how to write stories on deadline. You figure out so much of this is about showing up and getting to know the people. Um, and, and same with when I moved on to cover the police and fire departments, like, yeah. you know, those can, those can be tough places to crack too. And, and you sort of got to earn your trust with your sources and, and deal with, with extraordinary breaking news. I'm i I'm a little bit jealous. My, uh, I was an intern there for, for a while. And then when they first hired me, it was for the overnight reporting job. Um, mm. so my hours were midnight to 8am, um, oh. which, I, <laughs> which I quickly learned the only news that happens at midnight to 8am in New York is crime. Um, yeah. Bad news. It's, it's it's all pretty bad but it, I, it was a really exciting job and and you know it's it's and also you know you get the opportunity to write a lot too because everyone writes on their iphones now and files stories from there um so that yeah i mean it's 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 a really good experience i'm glad i did it um but it was uh it was a, a, a bit of a bit of rough hours oh for sure i did i had the 5 p.m to 1 a.m shift for a stretch okay. that's, uh that's, that's but rough I, <laughs> yeah, I think the only although at one a.m. in New York City, you can still go out and you know get a decent meal and a, and a drink. True. Um, the, uh, the I had the overnight shift during the early stages of the Iraq War for a couple of weeks, but I think oh. but I think that was largely uh, that was largely it. I don't envy your experience. Yeah. So we have some new New York centric news this week as well uh, that I'd love for you to help explain uh, the New York City mayoral race. Uh, I hate to ask so broad a question, but w what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> That's the only right. That's the right question. Uh, <laughs> I tried making US, a more specific question and I, I fell short. I'm sorry. Can't be done. Can't be done. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it is. It, let's start with this. It's a mess. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I certainly covered a number of these races. And though I'm not actively covering this one, I'm certainly still paying attention. Mm. And the short of it is this is the first time they've done ranked choice voting. Um, which just inherently, you know, it's a proponents say it, it leads to more accurate, accurate choice um and then uh you better representation of what people want uh you know but it is slower so we knew that going in it's the first time it's being used in new york city and this is to replace mary de blasio who served two terms and, and has to can't serve anymore um and we had the results come out a couple weeks back with eric adams uh the brooklyn borough president former police officer um in the lead and seemingly having a fairly commanding lead when when it was just tallied up on election on primary night just the first uh, choice ballots were collected. He was he was pretty substantially ahead over uh, Catherine Garcia, the former sanitation commissioner, 
uh, and Maya Wiley, who used to work for Mayor de Blasio as legal analyst on MSNBC and so on. She's more of a progressive candidate. Mm. Uh, and then what happened this week was that the first wave of ranked choice, the second you know, of the, the ranks came in, people second, third choice, et cetera, and the gap closed dramatically. But the New York City Board of Elections, which is actually largely run by the state, uh, which has long been a emblem of incompetence, uh, messed up the results and inadvertently put out, including in the tally, were these test results, these dummy results they used to head to, to test the system. Yes. So for a few hours, there were results out there that showed that Adams had dramatic, that uh, his lead had dramatically shrunk. Garcia had moved up to second. It was super tight. And then the Board of Elections, with no explanation, pulled it all down. And it took hours for them to say, like, hey, we, we messed this up. Uh, now, what has happened again, after being 24 hours of na a national joke, and in a more serious note, fueling doubts people have had and people like Donald Trump are eager to, to, to flame about people's trust in the voting system. When you have something like this go wrong, and we have heard for, you know, for months now, these, for the most part, completely... Uh, unfounded attacks on the integrity of our elections. And here we are having a, a legitimate debacle. Uh, so a pretty tough 24 hours for democracy there. Uh, but then yesterday, what happened is they put out the corrected results and they more or less showed the same thing. And Garcia okay. has now indeed closed the gap dramatically, but it's not done yet because there's still, I believe, uh, there's still something like 125,000 absentee votes that won't be tallied for another 10 days or so. Um, yeah. And and the and the margin between Adams and Garcia is so small that absolutely, uh, and Wiley too, she's in third, but it's not that far off, uh, that it absolutely could change the results. So we don't have an answer yet. We do not know yet who the Democratic nominee is. Is there a favorite at this point? Uh you know, it's, it it's, so it's, I'd say it's, a, I think it's a toss up at this point yeah. because the, the, the margin is so small. And then Dave Wasserman, you know, some of the other real political pollsters, analysts say Garcia is in a pretty good position. Uh, and then according to some analysis I read this morning, that a lot of the outstanding ballots are from places that went pretty hard for her. Uh, so she's look, Adams is ahead. So like you'd rather be ahead than behind. But I think that it's, it's going to be pretty close. Um, and, and with such questions about the validity of, the whole process like i wouldn't be shocked if there's some sort of recount that eventually is called for so this is a mess and it's going to be a mess for a while and and look there is a republican challenger waiting at the end of all this but in a, in a city that is overwhelmingly democratic and the republican challenger not being particularly well financed uh or taken all that seriously frankly uh whoever wins this primary is probably going to be the next mayor uh mm. so this is a, a very big deal uh, as to what happens in the next uh in the next few weeks I'm mostly just frustrated because I read maybe half a dozen Eric Adams profiles and <laughs> in the wake of the initial I'll never get back. In. And that's if Gavin Garcia wins, that's I know far too much about Eric Adams, the former Brooklyn Borough president. Um, <laughs> well, thank well you it is interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. It is. I would just say that it's an interesting choice, though, because they're very different candidates. They're both they are. more they're they're more moderate than Wiley. Uh, but, you know, Adams has really attached himself uh, with the idea of law enforcement and the fears of rising crime and shootings, and no doubt they're up in New York City. Uh, and, and the narrative had been when it looked like he was going to win, this is that, that his election was a reflection of those fears coming to the surface. Yeah. He ends up losing. What does that mean? So, well, yeah, all the takes, got, everyone needs to start with a brand new take. <laughs> That's always annoying. Jonathan Lemire, thank you so much for explaining that. And thanks for coming on this, uh, this podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. We'd be happy to do it again. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Jonathan Lemire on Mediate.com.